You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them to Exodus chapter 17. Every year, we take time to slow down and think deeply about the events that happened on this week over two millennia ago and how proper it is that we do so. Holy Week reminds us that all of history has led up to the death and resurrection of Jesus and all of eternity future flows from them. Before time began, when God planned what would happen on this week on Golgotha more than 2,000 years ago, he never meant for us to move beyond it or to forget its significance in our lives. He intends for us to dwell on it to somberly remember why it happened, to joyfully celebrate what has come because of it. As we will see from Exodus 17, history has always been about Good Friday. And because that's true, our lives should be all about Good Friday as well. Now, typically on Good Friday, we would turn to the crucifixion accounts of the Gospels and talk about all the events that led up to the cross. We would turn your eyes to Jesus, nailed to the cross and bleeding for you. Or maybe we would go to Romans 5 and talk about how the cross has brought justification by faith alone and Christ alone. And all of those are great and worthy topics to think about on Good Friday. So then, why are we going in the other direction in the wrong testament to think about the cross on Good Friday. Well, I think reading Exodus 17 today will do three things for you. First, it will give us a pattern that shows us how the cross has always been at the center of God's plan, even all the way back in the days of the Exodus. Even then, God was kind of showing his hand. He was revealing his cards and letting his people know that it's all about the cross and what his son would do there. Second, Exodus 17 gives us a clear view of the sinful human condition and reminds us why the crucifixion was necessary and why it will always be good news for us that Christ was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. And third, we're studying Exodus 17 because sometimes we need to shake things up a bit. The old story can sometimes become cold. The old story can sometimes become familiar, and with that familiarity becomes just kind of this blindness to its significance. And so by going to the wrong testament, by going to the wrong chapter, by looking at the old covenant and looking at a picture that God has given us, my hope today is that you will be given fresh meditations and that Jesus, wherever you are in this place tonight, that Jesus will rekindle the fires of your affection for him. Centuries before Jesus ascended the hill of Golgotha, the newly delivered Israelites were traveling through the desert in hopes of reaching the long-awaited promised land. They had personally witnessed how the Lord humbled Pharaoh, who was arrogant and rejected God and disobeyed God's words, tried to keep the Israelites to himself, and God judged them through plagues. And he overthrew the entire Egyptian army at the Red Sea. The Israelites were given a preview of the gospel at the Passover as death itself was forced to pass over the house because of the blood of the spotless lamb painted on their doorpost. Now we come to Exodus 17. 
And we find them living and traveling as freed people in the wilderness. Here's the question. Will they trust the Lord who has redeemed them? Will they trust the God who has freed them? After seeing everything that he has done, after seeing how he has graciously provided for their needs, after seeing how he has split an entire sea so that they could walk over on dry ground and escape a serpent-like enemy, will they still look to God to provide every need that they have? This is what the three tests that you read about in Exodus chapter 15 and 17 seek to reveal. You see, in Scripture, whenever there's a test, the test provides just the right sort of crisis that reveals what's inside a person's heart, whether faith or faithlessness. Now, in addition to showing what's inside our heart, whether it's faith or faithlessness, tests tend to reveal, always reveal, that God is faithful. So it shows whether we are faithful or faithless, but it always works to show that God is faithful. And Exodus 17 is the final of these three tests. And it will not only reveal Israel's sinful heart, but it will also give us a glimpse of God's cross-bearing heart. In Exodus 17... God's people leave the wilderness of sin. They come to a place called Rephidim, and when they arrive there, there's no water. And naturally, they're angry about this. They're scared. How are we going to live in a place where there's no water? And so they get angry. They begin to attack Moses. Now, you and I might say, well, what was wrong with that? We'd freak out too if we were on a road trip and we found out that our campsite didn't have any water. What was wrong with them being so angry? Well, think about everything they've gone through before. God has turned bitter water sweet at Mara. When they were hungry in the middle of nowhere, God sent frost-like manna to cover the ground so that they could eat bread. God literally made quail come and lie on the ground so they could pick it up, cook it, and eat it. Over and over and over again, God's showing that even in the desert, when he is with them, they will lack nothing. He will satisfy. And yet, they cannot learn the lesson. God is telling his people that he can be trusted to provide. He can be trusted to be counted on. All they had to do was ask. Imagine how different this story might be. Imagine how different Exodus might be or the Bible might be if they would have knelt down right then and there and immediately prayed and asked God to provide. But that's not what they did. Instead of turning to God, they turn against him. They grumble. That seems appropriate, right? (laughs) Why pray when you can grumble? That's the great response, I guess. They grumble and they presumptuously make demands on the Lord's provision. They look at Moses. They don't even look to God. They look at Moses, the man, and say, give us water. I can just imagine being a, you know, as being a pastor uh, for a few years, people have asked a lot of me and a lot of things that I can't do. I can only imagine being in the middle of the desert, somebody asking me to give them water to drink. Moses standing there helpless, completely unable to do anything for them. And they begin to threaten to attack him. Now let's just stop for a moment and diagnose what's going on here. Just remember that these people have seen the Lord's work through their own eyes. And yet they are still slow to respond. Slow to believe. Slow to trust. Slow to ask what God is doing. What is keeping them from responding in faith? Why were they acting like this? 
when Paul recounts this story in 1 Corinthians 10, he says it was because they did not trust the Lord and they desired evil instead of desiring God. As the test reveals, they didn't want God. They wanted everything that God could give. And whenever their sinful desires weren't met, they got angry. My friends, we see from this that sinners are always faithless people. And even if God were to miraculously deliver a million people out of Egypt, they continue to disbelieve and reject God until God brings Egypt out of them. Even if they see the miraculous works of God, they cannot trust him. Their hearts are too sinful. We see right here in this verse, in this chapter, in this story, that our problem has never been external. Humanity's plight is not about Egyptian pharaohs. It's not about desert places. It's not about waterless deserts. It's not about poverty. It's not about bad bosses, cancer, or nuclear, nuclear weapons. Our main problem has never been external. Our main problem has always been and always will be internal. We are in desperate, desperate need for a new heart that is free and liberated from sin. Israel's sinful heart is put on full display when they question Moses and indirectly question God's motives in bringing them out of Egypt. They ask Moses, knowing that God can hear, God is within earshot of this. They say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us? And our children and our livestock with them. Do you, do you guys hear the serpent's voice in that? You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you will become like God. The depraved, sinful human heart always questions the goodness of God. It couldn't be that God brought them out because he has a covenant love for them and has good promises and wants to make them his people and wants to establish his good and glorious and blessed presence with them. No, it must be that God wants to kill them. My friends, we have to reckon with this. We have to reckon with the reality of our depraved heart. This is what we're really like. Our sin blinds us and causes us to see even God's goodness as oppressive and evil. The food he gives eventually seems spoiled. The water that he gives tastes bitter. The love he offers seems limiting. The, the sacrifice and the salvation he wants us to have seems like death to us in sin. It's just our nature. Sinners always distrust God's goodness. Whether we are in a garden paradise whether we are freed from Egyptian captivity or whether we're in the 21st century sitting in the Stonegate Auditorium. At the very root of every sinner lies a heart that distrusts God and questions his goodness. Now, why, why go so deep into all this? Here's why. You do not relate with any other character in this story except the grumbling Israelites. You are not most like Yahweh. You are not most like Moses. You and I are just like these grumbling, prophet-stoning, God-accusing Israelites. To borrow a concept from the hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, honesty compels us to read Exodus 17 and admit, ashamed I hear my grumbling voice call out among the scoffers. If I'd have been there, this would have been me. 
We can't blow past the nature of Israel's sin in Exodus 17. First off, because it gives us a reflection of our own sinful heart. But second off, because whether we like it or not, it sets the stage for grace. Your view of sin will impact your view of grace. The bigger you see sin, the more depraved you see our sinful heart, the more you get sick to your stomach over grumbling Israelite hearts like you and I have, the more the waters of God's grace become sweet. The more we can experience the beauty of everything God is and what he has done. It's only by seeing the ugliness of Israel's grumbling and their complaining and their tendency to question the good God that you and I can see the beauty of what God's about to do. As we're reading through the story, it's worth just to take a moment and go like, what would you do if you were the Lord? If I were the Lord... Gracious Lord, delivered these Israelites. They weren't looking for me when I did. I promised to provide for them. I've proven time and time again that I wouldn't abandon them. And now here they stand in the daggum wilderness. Questioning me. Accusing me of bringing them out of the wilderness to kill them. And their kids with starvation. And then they want to kill my friend Moses. They're spitting on the face of their redeemer, the gracious God who brought them out of slavery. Now sheer logic says they deserve nothing more than God's wrath. Anyone with a remote sense of justice would agree that these people do not deserve the goodness of God. Nevertheless, God's ways are not our ways. And thankfully, I'm not the Lord. What he is about to do is shocking. It's baffling and it's almost absurd. He tells Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Now, if you're reading through this for the first time, you're like, God's about to bring down the hammer. He just told Moses to go get the switch. (laughs) If you know anything about the ancient world... And how it functioned, it's got all the elements right here of a very formal trial. It's a criminal trial. You have witnesses before all the people. You have a council or a jury of the elders. And then you have what's equivalent to a gavel, the staff of God's judgment. By this point in the story, the staff symbolizes fully God's judgment against those who oppose him. As God says, it's the staff that struck the Nile and turned it into blood. It's the same staff that made gnats come from the ground. It's the same staff that called down hail on the Egyptians. This is the staff of judgment. To see this staff is not good news. So what's it going to be, Lord? Is it going to be a plague? Is Moses going to strike the ground and swallow up all the grumblers? Maybe Moses is going to tell the people to hold up the staff and call down fire and destroy everyone who accused him of being a murderer. Or maybe God will tell Moses to give them all boils with the staff. What's it going to be? This is where the story takes a surprising turn. God will not bring judgment on his people at this time because he wants to teach them a lesson about what he will do later. God tells Moses, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come of it and the people will drink. 
This is absolutely shocking. While we expect God to judge the grumbling Israelites, God says he will stand before the people. He will take the stand and sit in the seat of the accused. When it's time for judgment, when it's time for the staff to strike, when, for, when it's time for the hammer to fall, it will not fall on his guilty people, but on him. He's innocent. He's faithful. He's done everything that he should, been falsely accused, and yet he stands on the rock and Yahweh takes the strike. And God's people drink. It's not by mistake that Yahweh came to be called the rock of salvation. The rock of salvation. It is his guilty people who deserve judgment. And yet Yahweh stands in their place on the rock, the place of the accused, and he takes the strike, substituting himself, substituting his honor even, to receive the judgment. As a result of his substitution, water flows from him, from the rock, and the people drink and live. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? But why is it important? On its own, Exodus 17 makes little sense. If you're an Old Testament only kind of person, uh, it's not going to make any sense to you. In fact, from here, they just kind of move on, right? They don't really say much else about this rock. It just kind of moves on. But if you read Exodus 17 as a part of the whole Bible, which we should, God has given us the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When you begin to back out and you see this story in the backdrop of redemption, then it becomes massively important. God is previewing what he's going to do. In Exodus 17, God teaches us that a grumbling sinner's life with him always depended upon Good Friday. Already in Exodus 17, God is showing his people, number one, that they are sinful and deserve wrath. Number two, that he himself must become their substitute and receive the judgment on their behalf. And number three, as a result of his sacrificial substitution, they will drink and live. Does that sound familiar at all? The cross has always been God's plan. In Exodus 17, we find this dress rehearsal of Good Friday. God marching up to the rock, receiving the strike, struck in their place. It's a dress rehearsal of Golgotha. When Paul and the gospel writers read Exodus 17, the line of the cross, they saw the gospel clearly. If you doubt that this is what Exodus 17 is about, then read 1 Corinthians 10, which Jimmy and Rodney will get to in a few weeks. Paul interprets Yahweh standing on the rock as Christ the image of God standing in the place of judgment, receiving the strike of judgment for, on behalf of guilty sinners and providing life-giving water speaks of only one person. Speaks of Jesus. Now how beautiful is it that what they experienced in such a miraculous way, they only experienced it in part. We have it in full. We understand the whole significance of it. At the crucifixion, God in flesh stands on the rock, receives judgment in our place. The God of man is struck on our behalf. And what's the result? Life-giving water. 
Do you think John made a mistake in saying that after the soldier pierced Jesus' side, that blood and water flew from it? How amazing is that? History repeats itself. At the cross, the rock is struck and guilty sinners live. Jesus is smitten, stricken, and afflicted by God. And by his wounds, we drink. And we live. Now you might be saying to yourself, neat connection. Never seen Exodus 17 in that light. So what? Here's what I hope you will get out of this brief study of Exodus 17. First, there's something eternally significant that happens when a person acknowledges and recognizes that they drink and live only because God received the strike of judgment for them. The waters of grace become sweeter when I acknowledge how bitter my sin really was. It also helps me see that Jesus' death was not just something done for me. We talk about Jesus' death for me. Jesus' death for me. Jesus' cross for me. Guess what? Jesus' death was because of me. Because of my sin. He was struck for me, but he was struck because of me. If I wasn't the grumbling sinner that I am, if I wasn't the God-hating, prophet-killing, God-rejecting, sinful, wannabe God that I am, the rock would have never had to been struck. This is what we call propitiation. Something must be struck when sin happens. A sacrificial, a sacrificial substitute is necessary because God's righteous perfection demands justice. You realize God would not be a good God if he were not just. God would not be just if he did not judge sin. So then, how has he judged sin? You realize that when Jesus died, your sin was still judged. To say, like, to say something like, my sin has never been judged. No, that's not true. Your sin has been judged. It's been struck the rock was struck, and to your blessing, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are those who in Christ have accepted this life-giving water. We are those that Isaiah chapter 12 says that we can joyfully draw from the wells of salvation and drink. That's what we're doing here tonight. We're recognizing that we were the grumbling Israelites and we're standing here in shock that the staff of wrath, the staff of judgment, the rod smote someone else, not us. Struck a substitute in our place. And as a result, thirsty sinners like us can come and drink water without price. That's what Good Friday does. Good Friday is all about that invitation to come and drink water without price. Why? Because the rock was struck and water's flowing from him. Your thirst is obvious. Your thirst is obvious. You can see it in the way that, that you are bidding for a career, the way that you are pursuing wealth and security. You can see your thirst and how badly you need a reputation and how badly you're trying to present an image. You can see your thirst when, when you are just dying on the inside and keeping a mask on the outside. Jeremiah says that all sinners are forsaking God and digging broken wells for themselves. And Good Friday says, put down the shovel, come back to the water. 
Come get the water of life. Come to the one who was struck. Come to the rock. Your savior. Who received the blow for you because of you so that you can drink and live. This is, this is the great humbler of humanity. Good Friday humbles everyone. Everyone in here is thirsty. Everyone in here deserves judgment. Everyone in here needs the rock. And everyone in here can drink. So I just want to invite you. Real belief begins when you accept that Jesus, your rock, was struck for you and because of you. And after that, you can benefit from his sweet water. My friends, as just a Christian, not as a preaching guy, not as a pastor, not as a staff member, not as anything of that, just as a, just as a sinner, I can tell you how good it feels today to say that I was sinful. I deserve and deserved wrath. But because Jesus stood in my place, I drink and I live and I will never thirst again. If you want that, we want you to want that. We want you to have that. Come to the rock and drink. Father God, we thank you for the beautiful gospel, even in the Old Testament. And we just bask in the glory that history has always been about Good Friday. So now, Father, we celebrate the rock who was struck for us and because of us. And we praise his name.